0: This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation channel 156.
1: Today on the Luke Thomas Show podcast, we're going to talk about the Nevada Commission approving of combat sports and issuing their own COVID-19 safety protocol. We'll be joined by UFC bantamweight Corey Sandhagen to preview his upcoming fight against Algerman Sterling at UFC 250, and we dig into the TLTS Midweek Mailbag. The Luke Thomas Show airs weekdays, 1 p.m. East Coast time, right here on SiriusXM Fight Nation, Channel 156. Don't forget about that mailbag, Show at gmail.com. Happy to be here today. <laughs> Hagen will join us via the magic of Zoom. That's always a fun little time. Uh, But right now, before we go any further with the topics of the day, we gotta get to some breaking news. Breaking news. You will like this. This is good breaking news. This is the kind of breaking news you want me, not to break, I'm not the one breaking it, but to share with you at a very bare minimum. Now, this may not sound like much, but to me, it's a pretty big deal. When I say it may not sound like much, it's something we had anticipated yesterday, but now it is official, and I want to explain the consequences here very quickly if we can because I want to get to our opening topic, but the the news is breaking that I I just got to get to it. So, the Nevada Athletic Commission has approved uh, essentially the return of combat sports. Now, there's a lot of conditions on this, but... Saturday's UFC show, you'll recall Dana White was like, "Look, May 30th, we're going to be in Vegas, we're going to be in Arizona, we're going to be in one of the places, but we're going to have a show on May 30th." Okay. They're going to be at the Apex. And remember, the UFC owns the Apex. This is the place where you know, it's a 50,000 square foot facility. They've got all the training environments in there, filming video, you know, streaming, blah 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 blah. They got me the whole 9 yards, right? It's a the, the vertical integration dream come true. They're going to have it there. I suspect The overwhelming majority of fights are going to take place there until we have real and sustained opened venues in this country. So sit back and relax because the Apex is going to be MMA's home, at least as far as the UFC is concerned, for quite some time. This comes to us from MMA Junkie. The Nevada Athletic Commission uh, held its first monthly meeting since the beginning of the COVID-19 outbreak. It was a conference call. and lasted 15 minutes, and they came to a unanimous decision. Uh, the, the commission approved the first MMA events in its jurisdiction since March. The UFC, which has announced plans to hold it at the Apex on Saturday and June 6th, will now be allowed to do so. The commission unanimously approved their COVID-19 protocols for events without the presence of a live audience. I'm going to share with you those protocols in just a minute before unanimously approving the two UFC events and the two, by the way, top-rank boxing events. Bob I'm trying to get back to work in Las Vegas. Uh, Bob Bennett, who's the NAC executive director, said the commission has been working hand-in-glove with the UFC and, quote, everything is moving forward. He said the, the UFC's protocols align with the new plan set forth by the Nevada Athletic Commission. While it is unclear, they write... How many straight weeks the UFC plans on holding events at the Apex? The promotion has events planned for Saturday, June 6th, June 13th, June 20th, and June 27th. So your month of June, if everything stays on track, is going to be quite busy. However, the latter three events were not discussed since they were not part of Wednesday's agenda. Just the, this week and then the first week of June. Um, okay, now the protocols. Uh, as it relates to what they want, I'm not going to get to everything, but they state, they state a bunch of different things. Okay. Um, All personnel working the event to include, but not limited to fighters, corners, managers, promoters, promoter staff, production staff, security, cleaning staff, commission staff, and all officials will be mandated to quarantine immediately after the COVID-19 tests upon receiving the results. They must stay quarantined, which means no contact with the public until the conclusion of their respective event. The promoter and promoter staff will be responsible for knowing the location of their personnel working the event. Um, There are rules about who can come into the hotel um, when you're, once you get checked and you've been in that hotel, there's temperature monitoring, questionnaires, oral fluid collection for uh, testing, quarantine until results are confirmed. Um, The cleaning of the closed system, there is a a whole situation. There are going to be education pamphlets. There's rules about communication. There's testing. So before arriving, all individuals preparing to enter the closed system shall shall submit to the following questionnaires below. So have you had any of these symptoms? Have you been in contact with somebody? Then there's going to be a testing. Um, The reports, all questionnaires will need to be reviewed by a professional medical consultant. The test results will be reported directly to representatives of the NSAC compliant with HIPAA. Uh, If an individual is suspected to have COVID-19, the individual will remain in quarantine with an infectious disease expert that will consult them. And it goes on and on and on and on and on from there. This is what I was talking about before back in April. When the MMA world decided that I was some hysteric about this, all I was asking for was this. Right here. Am I presenting to you this being the perfect plan. No, I am not. I suspect over time that we will figure out that as situations change or we discover new challenges or whatever, they will tighten the screws in certain different directions. They might loosen them in others, right? We, we don't know. This is uh, the second draft of these rules, but the first by a major commission to really get things going. Okay? But this is what I wanted from the word go. When a... Commission, a leading commission, has developed safety protocol, and you can do a show with a commission, a leading commission, and you can follow the guidelines therein. Well, then you can get back to business. Here we are. Mission accomplished. Again, not in totality, but for that first major step. And listen to some of these differences. The differences are not insignificant. Do we know? If the commission in Florida even required UFC to report test results, like if Stephen A. Smith doesn't get wind of Jacare's positive test result, does UFC tell us, does the commission tell us? We don't know. Now we have a commission saying, you have to tell us, look, I'm not telling you. I mean, I've buried the Nevada commission more times than I've praised them. But the reason why commissions are important is because you just cannot rely on promoters to do the job uh, transparently without being compelled to. It's just the reality of the business. If they don't have to tell you, in all likelihood, they probably won't. It's why you need a government entity. It's not that the government entity can go above and beyond the call of duty and be nimble and, and forward thinking. They are slow. They are slow by design. They are backwards. They are backwards by design because what they serve as is a foundational requirement, right? What they serve as is a slow, let's make sure kind of a body in terms of what oversight they provide. That is what you are getting here. They are required to give test results to the commission. And the commission, I suspect, if they get positive results, they may not name the individual people, but they will certainly tell us uh, about situations they're in. Right? Um, And they've got all these other rules that go into place. It's not them adopting UFC rules. It's noting that the UFC rules comply with theirs. Big, big difference. Remember one more time what the waiver that the UFC, which I'm told has since been amended, although we've not seen the new language. But remember the one in Florida that they made everybody sign, including media. Forget about the non-disparagement part. But they basically said, we're not under any obligation to do any of this stuff. But uh, so you can't hold us responsible if you get COVID. Now, I don't know what the responsibility is if someone actually contracts COVID here. That, to me, remains uh, something we have to figure out. But now they are under legal obligation to do it. Right now, it's the commission not saying, hey, UFC, you can run the show, which Florida allowed. It's Nevada saying, no, 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 we've got the show. You comply to what we are doing. I'll say it one more time. If they don't enforce the rules, they're as good as meaningless. Right. They, they're just words on paper. It's all got to be enforced. It's all got to be executed. I think we can all agree there. And if they fail on that, then who cares about any of this? It means nothing. But to me. This is what I was asking for when I said, you know, what, I think it's a real bad idea for the UFC to go to Tachi Palace and not have a state athletic commission regulate them when all the state athletic commissions don't even have COVID protocol established. Seems like a really bad idea. This is what I was waiting for. It looked like this, at least the beginning stages of it. All I was asking for was this. Does this seem so crazy to everyone now? Now that the peak... You know, now that hospitalizations are falling, now that deaths are falling in the country, now that lockdowns are beginning to be eased, even my own city of Washington, D.C., that's going to open things up on Friday, finally, and now that a commission has this, does this all seem so crazy now? All I was asking for this. All required was a little bit more patience. Not that crazy, is it? Pretty straightforward, actually. This is what the the finish line, again, the first of many finish lines, but this is what the finish line looked like. I hope everyone understands that now. I was asking for this.
2: This week on World of Basketball, the head coach of the Spanish
3: national team and Toronto Raptors assistant Sergio Scariolo joined the show and he spoke about the Raps signing of Marc Gasol midway through last season. I really felt that it could be a great addition to our team. But at the same time, I had to try to be objective. Because my bosses were, were asking, you know, I and Nick, hey, what's your opinion? What do you think? What do you, what do you think is the pros, the cons? And that's, uh, my conclusion was always, this guy is going to help. But because it's going to bring
2: more of a winning culture, more of a unselfish attitude,
3: more playmaking. New episodes of World of Basketball are available every Thursday on the Sirius XM app and Pandora.
1: It's the one and only Corey Sanhagen. Hi, Mr. Taekwondo. How are you? i'm good how you doing good buddy tell me uh, uh what's the situation with the training has it uh, elevated past hitting the uh, pads with a significant other in the uh, yeah. in the car park
0: it's elevated quite a lot since then <laughs> uh, we're uh we're doing uh we're doing three training partners three coaches at the gym and we've been doing that for about eight weeks now
1: Oh, great. So you've been in the thick of it. Okay. Awesome. All right. Well, let's talk about this. Uh, they came to you. Tell me about the offer. How how did you figure out you were going to be fighting Aljamain Sterling? Walk me through it.
0: Uh, so yeah, so it was about eight weeks ago. They asked me, um, Hey, when's the soonest that you can fight? I said, our quarantine is technically over on whatever date it was about eight weeks ago. So I'll start training at that eight week mark, and then I'll be ready to go eight weeks from then. And that's how we kind of got the June 6th date. Um, how it got to be Aljamain is that was always kind of in the works. Uh, we we actually didn't get a contract until just, I think, last week or two weeks ago because I think UFC caught wind that Henry was going to do the uh, retiring thing. So I think that they kind of wanted to see how the division was going to play out and if he was serious about that, blah, blah, blah. So. We didn't actually get our contracts till a couple of weeks ago, but we had kind of known about it for a while now.
1: How would how would him retiring or not retiring affect you and Sterling in terms of your bout? I'm not sure I understand. Yeah, I, th-
0: I mean, in my imagination, it was they might do like a yawn and Sterling for the belt type of scenario, or or uh, or maybe make ours for a belt. I, I, you know, there. I mean, there's a bunch of hypotheticals that I went through in my imagination, but I think that that's kind of. Uh, maybe the route that they were going cuz i know garbra and the so sunside didn't get their contracts till recently either so i don't i don't know i think that they were just kind of waiting to see what was going to really happen with the division
1: Okay. Uh, interestingly, uh, by the way, there's been a lot of consternation, um, about your fight in the sense that people are really excited for it. It's one of the, it's the one I'm looking forward to most on the calendar, but there was a fight night, I think just a week or so later. And folks are like, why not make it five rounds for that fight night? Did the UFC ever discuss that? Why is your about three as opposed to five and and given where it is?
0: Yeah, I don't know, man. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I I could see the argument that it could be for a belt and I could see the argument that it could at least be for a five round uh main event, but you know, I uh I, I don't know. I can't tell you. I was open to both of those ideas, obviously. So um I, I can't tell you.
1: Did you express that to UFC? Like, hey, I don't mind doing five.
0: Yeah, of course. I I, I would actually really prefer to do a five round fight just to kind of see how that feels and, and what training for like that is. Um and, and kind of how to uh, train more specifically for a five-round fight opposed to three rounds, um, just as far as pace and stuff like that. So uh, I, I would definitely would have preferred to do a five-round fight before it being for a title, but uh, yeah, I mean, that was expressed. I don't really know why they didn't do it.
1: Are you under the impression, and it's a reasonable one if you are, but are you under the impression this is a number one contender fight?
0: Yes, I'm very heavily under that impression. I, I, can't really ima- I can't really imagine a scenario where I'm not fighting for a belt after this win, especially if it's um, a really good performance, which I intend on putting on, and uh, and hopefully getting a finish, which I think is a very achievable goal against Aljamain. So, um, yeah, I mean that's that's my. <laughs> I, I have a lot of eggs. Or I, I suppose I don't have too many eggs in that basket, but I mean to, to for something else to be not that seems uh like something would really be off
1: yeah i, w- I would be shocked if it wasn't for a number one contender uh position all right so let's talk about the fight itself man first of all you just have to be you know you talk to fighters all the time about their motivations aside from just the stakes involved the opponent here you know aljomaine sterling had a couple of stumbles in his career but he's really come into his own he's a formidable challenge which means i'm guessing this is the kind of fight if the fight fans are excited for this one, I'm guessing the fighters themselves sort of understand this is the kind of thing that gets them up in the morning too, right? So to what extent does this matchup, um, what does it do for you? Not, not the stakes, but I mean as a competitor.
0: Yeah, as a competitor, man, I think that me and Aljamain bring a lot of the one physical um, advantages into the fights. Aljamain's, I think, one of the taller guys in the division as well. Um, as well as kind of his style, where it's kind of from the outside, point scoring, moving your feet a lot, mixing it up with the grappling. When he does get a takedown, he doesn't kind of just look to hold. He's always looking for a a finish. And I would say that my style is very similar to what he's doing. So as a competitor, man, I, I really like the idea of we're going in with the exact same or very similar advantages, but now it's just about, well, who's better at those advantages? So it's one of those things where it's like, who's actually better at what they do? You know, and that really excites me because uh, I mean that just raises the bar for me, man. Like I, I want to show that Aljamain has gotten really far doing what he does. I do very similar things, and I'm going to try to just completely pitch a shutout and uh, and 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 embarrass him in there as much as I can uh, with my skill. You know that that's what I that's what I hope to do. So um, as a competitor, that really excites me. Just going in with the same advantages and then showing that I'm better at those.
1: Where do you think in terms of the differences lie? Where, where do you think that the 2 depart?
0: Um, I think that he makes more technical errors than I do. Um, but at the same time, I think that he, he is, he does bring this awkwardness where he's going to be hard to find, you know, his, his head looks hard to hit uh, just based off of how he moves. I know that like when I've trained with people that have kind of similar styles as he does and, and the same type of, uh, uh you know the ways that they move uh they're very deceptively hard to hit so i think that that's one thing that is going to bring in um but kind of with that and it's a double edged sword he also has um he 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 makes i think a, a decent amount of mistakes defensively in in doing so which i mean we've shown we or we've seen with dominic cruz can be a huge advantage you know technically dominic cruz doesn't keep his hands by his face he doesn't really move his hands like like a fundamental way. And, and he's gotten very far with that, just like how Aljamain does. So um, if there's any question mark going into the fight for me, it's just, all right, well, how hard is he to hit? You know, that's about it.
1: Have you thought at all about some of the physical differences, his potential reach strength? I've heard from other folks who roll with him. He's very, very strong. What, what yeah. sort of consideration do you give to those, those factors?
0: No, I can tell he's strong. The, the way that he's able to kind of pin people against the cages is, is good. Um, and I and I think I've also heard from a few people that he does cut cut a lot of weight, so I'm assuming he's going to be a little bit bigger than me. Um, yeah, but I, I mean, I, I I try to train with guys that are bigger than me and stronger than me, anyways, just because I know that that's not going to be uh, an attribute that I bring into many of my fights where I'm going to be able to muscle people around. So definitely, I think he's going to have that advantage. But I don't think that it's going to feel like I'm, I'm inadequate in any of those scenarios, just because. I, I mean, I, I train mostly with 55 fivers so, um, I, I, you know, I, I don't think it's going to throw me off too much
1: in, in terms of the game plan. I don't expect you to share it, but how about this? Does the game plan, if they came to you today and said, okay, we're going to make it five rounds and let's say you both were on board with it. So now it's a five round fight. Would your game plan heading into uh, UFC 250 would it shift at all? Or it, I guess the question is how much does the game plan change from a three to a five round fight?
0: I think just the pace would change like I I know what a 3 round pace is um and I don't really know what a 5 round pace is um in a fight uh, obviously we do more rounds than than we're just than just the 3 when we're getting ready for a fight we're we're usually doing 5 or 6 rounds anyways so um but those rounds are really for me just to get smoked and and for me to really like push myself anyway so I I think that it would just be setting a different pace if they decided to change it which Uh, If Dana White's listening, I'm still open to the idea of him making it it for a title and him making (laughs) it for a five-round fight. Um, But no, as far as strategy-wise, not too much would change. I would just kind of change the pace of the fight.
1: You know, it's interesting. I talked to Francis Ngannou after his last win, his 18-second win over uh, Jairzinho Rosenstreich, and he was really kind of upset they didn't make it for a title. Some fighters, like, you know, Justin Gaethje takes the belt off immediately, and other ones are like, yo, this would actually mean a lot. Now, In that case, that was the interim. This would be the sort of the, 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 the actual title now that Henry had dropped it. But I I'm guessing, though, that title or no title, I mean, your motivation can't be that different, right?
0: No, it's not that different, man. The the only way that I can really explain it is that it feels like, um, when, when you can see the finish line, you know, and, and you either do one of two things, you either speed up because you're like, Hey, I'm almost there. Or you're like, Oh man, it's, it's, I'm almost there. All right. Let me just keep the same pace. And it's, I'm not the keep the same pace guy. It's like, all right, like this is actually just within my, my reach of actually achieving this, where. Um, I think that there's not going to be a lot of arguments against me getting a title shot after this. There's not going to be too many guys or if anyone ahead of me that uh, has a, a reasonable argument for the title shot. So for me, it, it doesn't necessarily change the motivation, but I have noticed a little bit of a fire in, in me a little bit more than normal. I've noticed kind of um, this, this chip on my shoulder that uh, I'm a little bit unused to. Um, but, but it's kind of been driving me just because I, I see that finish line. It's, it's just right. It's, it's right there. You know, I just, I just got to keep working hard and, 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 and get it.
1: Corey Sanhagen joins us here on the Luke Thomas show. Corey, let's talk about what also is happening in the Bansomweight division. You had Henry beat Dominic Cruz. We talked about, we previewed that fight when we spoke last first, just let me get your impressions of the fight.
0: Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, dude, Henry's really good, man. Like, at the end of the day, he he's kind of an annoying character or whatever, but uh, he the guy's a really good fighter, and I think that he showed that 100% against Cruz. I, I think that Henry was completely in control of that fight. Uh, as much as Cruz might not want to hear that or the Cruz fans might not want to hear that, I don't think uh, Cruz showed any signs of him... Um, being able to win that fight, albeit it, it was there, there wasn't any huge moments, but I mean, you could just tell in, in kind of the demeanor of Henry versus, uh, Cruz that I, I think Henry was really in control of that fight. As far as the stoppage goes, I, um, not the best, but not the worst. I think in a championship fight, you definitely let it keep going. If that's me, you definitely let it keep going. But, uh, I don't think it was the worst stoppage that we've ever seen. You know, there's definitely an argument on both sides for it
1: obviously there was a huge break in cruz's career but he used to seem to like really confuse opponents and if you take the garbrandt fight and then the cejudo fight his last two they didn't seem nearly as confused by what he was doing why do you think that is
0: yeah the sports evolved man like we're we're past all of the whole uh the sports just evolved man like everyone is so good in every single area that like you gotta really there's there's two types of guys i think and there's, there's guys that will do things um, and continue to do those things because it's working for them. And there's guys that will do things, realize that they're also still making mistakes in those things and then fix them. And I, and I, and I kind of see that Cruz is a little bit like that. Like Cruz is one of those guys where it's like, hey, this works for me my entire career. Why am I going to change it? Where in my head, it's like I want to fix mistakes before they become problems. I want to see myself and be like, ah. Oh, you know, be honest with myself enough to be like, Hey, you made a mistake there, man. And and you got away with it. And, and that's how I, I kind of have the viewpoint coming from where it's like, I'm not going to let that happen again, because if that goes south, then that's not good. You know? And, uh, yeah.
1: What did you make of Henry leaving the division?
0: I think it's, I think it's real. I was pumped about it, man, because now it feels like orders a little bit restored. (laughs) Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I was excited about it. I think I was like, I was really excited when, when he when he was retired. Um, hopefully he's retired. I don't know, but I, I think his his uh, success after fighting is going to depend on whether or not he'll come back. If, if he goes and finds some thing that he's really good at and uh, is is doing well, I think that he'll just stick with that. And I think if he's not doing as well, where else can you make as much money in one night as he probably can? So he'll probably be back. But I, I think that's going to depend.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I would have. Is there a part of you that doesn't care who you beat to get to the title? Or was there a part of you that was like, I want to be the one to take it from Saúdo?
0: I wanted to take it from Saúdo because I thought that I really had a lot of advantages in that fight that no one else really had. Uh, and I wanted to see how that would stack up against such a great fighter. Um, as far as winning a title now, uh, I mean, hitting a restart button and kind of like being the first one in line doesn't really do it for me. You know, but what's going to do it for me is, all right, you won the belt. Cool. Are you going to take out these four or five guys that they, that everyone else says might be better than you? Are you going to take those guys out? That's what's going to do it for me. You know, just completely taking everyone out of the division. Um, and then I'll kind of be satisfied. But until then, uh, you know, winning a belt at the restart button is kind of just, eh, you know, it's cool. It, it, I guess it's kind of, but if you lose it right after that, then what's it worth, you know? So to me it's just more about beating every single person in the division.
1: Was your expectation that uh provided you win the Sterling fight that you'll be facing off against the winner of Jan and Maurice?
0: Yeah, is that fight happening? I was going to ask.
1: It was supposed to at a time and then everything yeah. kind of fell apart. We don't know what the status is. Obviously Peter is probably I don't know if, I don't know if he can travel, right? And 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 Marlin's here, but you know who the hell knows.
0: Yeah. Um y- yes, my intention is they get a fight as soon as they, I want to win the belt by the end of the summer. That, that's, that's kind of my goal, you know? So mm. I want to win this one. And if Jan and Marais are fighting cool, if everyone wants to be high on Jan, then let's just do me and Jan and we can skip that fight. It doesn't matter to me. Um, but yeah, I want to win that belt at the end of the summer.
1: It sounds like Jan is the one that, uh, I don't know. I just get the vibe that you really want to fight him in particular.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, man, it's hard for me to separate, like, my jealous feelings from, like, my competitive feelings. Uh, There's, like, there's a little bit of jealousy inside of me, man, because I I feel like I'm the one that's, uh, I mean, we've talked about it, man. I feel like I've had a little bit better of a resume, and people are kind of just, you know, granted, his, his wins have been very impressive. I don't think people critically think enough for them to be like, Oh, but also Corey's doing this, this and this, but that takes a little bit of critically think critical thinking. And I don't think a lot of people do that, which is fine. That's, that's their choice in their life. But, um, yeah, th- I mean, there's some jealousy there, man. And there's just some, I just want to shut people up, man. Like, uh, as a competitor and a- as a competitor, I have to be confident in this, but I, I, d- I don't think that anyone can beat me. So if someone tells me that someone else can beat me, I get, I get a little offended, you know, that's the offender or that's the competitor in me where it's like, dude, this guy can't beat me, man. Like get out of here with that. And, uh, and, and I think every competitor has to have a level of that. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's worked for me really good in the past. I I like to just completely try to embarrass people when I'm in the cage. I, I, and, and I don't always do it as, as well as I would have liked to, you know, and that might be the circumstance against Jan too. But from a competitor standpoint, man, it's like, I yeah, man, I'm tired of hearing about how this guy's better than me. I, I'm better than him. And, if, and I really want to show that to people just to sh- shut them all up. <laughs> uh,
1: I don't know if it, it, it changes your opinion or improves your mood at all, but we had Sean O'Malley on the show yesterday. You'll note he's fighting on that 250 card as well against Eddie Wineland. And I said, we went through the tournament. So you Sterling, let's imagine Jan versus Marais. And we had him match make all the way through. He had you coming out as the full on winner among the four. I wonder what your reaction is to that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think me and Sean have a lot of, I mean, I mean, I can tell in his style, man, like he's playing that new game, you know, like he's playing this game of shutting people out. He's not playing this game of like, let's go out and put on a good fight for everyone to watch. Like that takes care of itself just in becoming skilled enough to, to, to pull off a style, the the way that I feel like Sean has and the way that I feel like I have, you know, and, uh, and, and that's really kind of him to say. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's, he Had he has things figured out enough and he has an eye enough for the sport, and you can just tell in a style that like he understands where the, ne- where the next wave is coming and where the new wave is coming. And uh, I mean, you can recognize that like we're we, we have to realize that we're all a bunch of very expert professional fighters watching one another, and we know when the other person is making a mistake, and they know when, when we're making a mistake. That's why it's very important in all of these fights to show that you don't have any weaknesses. And if you do have any weaknesses and you can, you can spot them in yourselves, you better believe that other people are able to spot them, spot them in you as well. So, um, so yeah, I mean, uh, I think that he's on, he's riding the new wave too. And I, and I'm riding the same wave.
1: Well, I'll tell you what, 250 can't come soon enough. Uh, Corey Sanhagen takes on Al Jermaine Sterling. Absolutely. Cannot wait for it. Corey. I always appreciate your time. Truly cannot wait to see your fight. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, thank you,
3: Luke. I'll talk to you afterwards, okay?
1: Yeah, Yes, sir, you will. Alright, Luke Thomas Show, coming right back.
3: WWE legend The Undertaker.
1: I have tried my hardest to protect Kay Faye. Honestly, just within the last couple of years, I mean, I would cringe when I would hear people, you know, like we're doing now, like talking openly about behind-the-scenes stuff. It would just, like, I, I'd grit my teeth and this I think I was the real last holdout to, to Kay Faye.
3: Listen, the Busted Opens interview with WWE legend The Undertaker on demand now via the Serious XM app. Just search Busted Open Interviews now free for most subscribers.
1: Mail time. Mail time.
3: Oh, mail time. Mail-
1: Have a question about MMA, sports, entertainment, or life in general? If people just came to me for the answers, the world would be a better place.
2: Email Luke at show at gmail.com and get the answers to all those burning questions during the Luke Thomas Show Midweek Mailbag.
1: All right. Time for the TLTS Midweek Mailbag. We do it every Wednesday. You can contribute very easily for free. All you got to do is just email us, LukeThomasShow at gmail.com. You can write us about bourbon. You can write us about, you, know, you can probably leave politics out of it, but you can write us about, you know, movies, MMA, boxing, sports in general, like whatever's on your mind, whatever is on your mind, we are here to help. LukeThomasShow at gmail.com. I don't want to waste any time. I believe we have a voicemail to start, which you can always do. Just record an MP3 and send it to us. So without further ado, let's kick off the mailbag. Mail, motherfucker, all right. Look, so
3: we do have this uh voicemail clip from Aaron from Connecticut. He's got a couple of questions for you uh for himself and on behalf of his girlfriend as well. This came like a week or so got after the fights. All right.
2: What's up, LT and K-O-B? It was completely awesome watching the fights last night. Even got my girlfriend to sit through several hours, albeit it took her a bottle of wine to stomach the blood and violence. Anyway, she's been making jokes for the past few months about how I am obsessed with your show. Since every single time I'm doing anything around the house, your voice is emanating from my phone. I also told her how smart you are and she was having trouble grasping why a man of your intellectual and social depth would make combat sports and analysis their chosen vocation. She was also asking what you did before you got into MMA and how you wound up where you are now. And her last question was whether or not you or Joe Rogan make more money. You don't have to answer <laughs> that one. But my question <laughs> is whether or not you have reached the pinnacle of what you're trying to do in your professional career, or is there more for Luke Thomas? For example, are you looking to sit in between John Annick and Joel Rogan? What is the carrot for which you are chasing? Thank you for contingently accepting my offer to come into the studio for a four-figure donation to a charity of your choice. Aaron from Connecticut, out.
1: All right, Aaron from Connecticut, asking a lot of questions that are have a built-in presumptions to them that, or assumptions rather, that uh, I don't know that I could get to uh, in in great detail. How did I end up here? Uh, like most things in my life, um, totally by accident. Uh, before doing this, I had held a number of jobs. Last one before sort of full-time MMA was I was a speechwriter. Um, I had some political clients. But I was for a firm that made you write speeches and then group test them to see if uh, the, the words you had written and the phrases and the ideas you had proffered tested well with um, different groups. So, for example, let me give you let me give you a hint of how it'll go. Somebody hires you to say, um, hey, we're having some problems with our messaging. So I would write speeches. I would deliver them over tape. We would give people these dials. And then they would say whether they approved of it or not in real time over the course of what I was saying. So you're able to pick up on over time if different phrases work, if the messaging in general works, if the ideas or you are suggesting works. And and that wasn't always the case for all the clients, but that was the predominant work that we did. And so I did that. I did that prior to MMA. And I got to MMA because I absolutely hated that job because the only people who really need your help in a job like that are the worst of the worst in this industry and in this world. It's people who are, you know, um, destroying the planet or not committing crimes, but, you know, engaged in ethically dubious activities and they need help with their messaging. So folks will stop harassing them. Right. So I, I thought it'd be different than it was. And after two years I tapped out, I had enough. Um, but yeah, that's what I did. I worked in a completely different industry and I got here. Uh, as far as who makes more, yeah, I don't, I don't think I even make 1% of what Joe makes. And I'm not doing poorly. I do okay. So keep that in mind as well. Um, and about the other questions, you know, I don't know how they have so much to do with intellect as they do with the curiosity for being confused about the way the world works. So like anyone else, if you just read enough things and you study enough, you can be prepared for just about any situation. And I'll leave it at that. Okay, next.
3: Answer my question! All right, this comes from Agent from California. It says, hey, Luke, why does it seem like fans don't care that Henry is vacating his title? Seems like when GSP did it, there was more people talking against it. Even though what Henry has so far accomplished is exceptional, is it because of the gimmick he started made fans just don't care whether he stay or goes? Or is it more about bantamweight being loaded with killers right now? Personally, though, I couldn't stand the gimmick. Once that octagon closed, he was a pleasure to watch complete he was a pleasure to watch compete.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So this is a fairly obvious one, uh, although it may seem confusing, right? Uh, A couple of things. Now, uh, Cobb, is he referring to GSP dropping the, he dropped both titles, which is a boss move. If ever, there was one. Is he referring to the one, the middleweight one where he beats Bisping and then just gives it up?
3: Yeah, that's, that's what he doesn't specify, but that's what I I'm thinking too, because he for dropping that belt.
1: Yeah. I don't remember there being, I mean, it was newsworthy when George had dropped the welterweight bout, but he had kind of telegraphed that a little bit that he was sort of completely run down. I remember interviewing him and he was very short with me and you know, he was just, he was done. He was done for a long time. So, so let's assume it's not that let's assume it's the, it's the, uh, the one for uh, middleweight. Well, first of all, a couple different circumstances. One He got the title and then dropped it a matter of days or weeks later and never had the one fight in the weight class, and then that was it. He was just over and done with. So it was this really weird, I'm here, I'm gone, kind of whirlwind moment that was, I think, confusing and unusual for some. Second of all, we're talking about George St. Pierre. He is a significantly greater figure in the history of mixed martial arts and relative to Henry Cejudo, competes in a much more noteworthy division. And I think most importantly, is just a much bigger celebrity. He's just a much bigger, visible figure. There's going to be more interest, more scrutiny around him, no matter what. Henry had been the champion there for one fight, and then he defended it. Now, the defending of it was weird, but um, in the sense that there was no... Well, he wasn't fighting the top contender. But... Um, you know, we're talking about a guy where there's just a lot more eyeballs on him. So they're just going to chew through what his actions mean a lot more. You add in the fact that there is this situation where this pandemic is kind of eating up everyone's news all the time, you know, less so now than it was back in March, but still, I mean, you can't, you, you literally cannot open a newspaper or turn on the news on your TV or however you get it and just avoid COVID-19 news. And you might be sick of it. I'm sick of it. We're all sick of it. But it is there. Oh, that kind of overshadowed things, too. And, you know, he never had the celebrated run that St. Pierre did. St. Pierre had the celebrated run, not at middleweight, but, you know, in the UFC. So there's just a lot of factors where GSP's presence, participation, you know, was the belt in a second weight class. Uh, He gave it up in short order. It was just all unusual. And he was a bigger figure. I think for those two predominant reasons, you know, that's why. Next. Answer my question!
3: All right, this comes from Miguel from Florida, who says, "Hey, Luke, uh, hopefully, I'm, ho- I'm hoping you can explain some of the matchmaking choices here. It seems like Masvidal now wants Diaz, while Camaro is angling for Connor. Can you explain what's happening at welterweight?
1: Who did ho- who's he saying Jorge wants? Diaz. Diaz, yeah." So my understanding is they tried to make the Kamaru versus Jorge fight, and it fell through, and I don't know why it fell through. I don't know on whose end it fell through, but that it fell through, or at least fell through for now. So both guys just went looking in different directions. Uh, Masvidal was like, look, I'll just run this back because he probably made a boatload of money fighting Nate Diaz relative to what he was making before. He probably likes his chances. Nate is a very famous fighter and blah 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 we all know the reasons so that could be one uh the other one is the the you know it's so funny what is kamaru doing that is so different than what henry did which isn't to say that henry didn't get you know a lot of flack for seeking out aldo coming off of a loss or cruz coming off of a three and a half year layoff he did but it's no different it's just the same thing yeah it's a money fight but you know it's look these are the incentives that they put out for how you make money in this business. They don't necessarily... Now, in the case of Jorge Masvidal, that could be different, right? Because he sort of changes the game a little bit in that equation. But what you're looking for to maximize money is what the other person can do to reasonably bring attention to the fight. Conor McGregor is currently ranked, whether you agree with it or not, 14 uh, on the welterweight rankings. So, as a consequence, he is going to be a high-prize target for anybody who is the welterweight champion. You can well imagine. They probably like their chances to win, as well as to make buku Niro. And we've seen the UFC be perfectly willing to skip the line in order to make fights. If you're Kamaru Usman, what do you have to lose in calling that out? You already beat Tyron Woodley. You already beat Colby. You already beat uh, Rafael Dos Anjos. You haven't fought uh, Jorge, but he's going in a different direction, at least temporarily. So why not do it? It's exactly what you've been incentivized to do they've shown a willingness to make fights like that it doesn't seem like connor wants it which i think is wise because i think that would be a horrible fight for him but i get why kamara is doing it it just it's all centers back on a fight that the ufc wanted to make and didn't and so you know we're living in this weird world of call outs in between next
3: message this comes from justin who's got a question about uh, some lightweight matchups he likes uh so he says hey luke Uh, we're going to have Habib versus Gaethje barring any act of of divine providence. So with that said, my call would be to book Ferguson versus Poirier, which if I win this all-in challenge will probably be my pitch. Here's where we go from there. If Gaethje beats Habib, Habib now has one loss, and it puts he and Tony on even footing. So from the casual fan perspective, you can book this fight with still a bit of history. So by virtue of it finally happening on the 6th attempt, people will tune in and finally get the answer they want between these two if Ferguson beats Poirier. If Poirier beats Ferguson, this puts him up there to fight Gaethje again, and we can push the narrative of, has Gaethje learned from this last encounter with Poirier? If Habib beats Gaethje, okay, Habib back to the undisputed top. Gaethje slides back down the rankings a little bit. If Ferguson beats Poirier in this case, you can book Ferguson versus Gaethje with a full fight camp for the two this time, and you can put away all the questions of, is it because Ferguson did multiple weight cuts because of the pandemic, or is Gaethje actually better? If Poirier beats Ferguson, then that much, then that pretty much puts away any notion that Ferguson can still keep up with a B and we can all move on with our lives and can still have Gaethje versus Poirier rematch and still answer whether Gaethje has learned anything from their last encounter. What do you think of his matchups there?
1: I don't have anything to add. That sounds very complete. A lot of good choices there, right, Cobb? I mean, Jesus, he sort of covered the full gamut. I have no idea what to even add at this point. uh sure it's
3: it's always just the conor mcgregor factor sitting around that always throws a monkey wrench into all this
1: yeah and then also you know what guys want and don't want and what they're willing to take and not take you know this is all the problem with matchmaking again matchmaking is partly like oh wouldn't it be cool if this happened this way and isn't this a good idea that is absolutely part of matchmaking the other part is uh they said no this guy's injured this guy doesn't want it now what do we do Right. And that gets a little bit narrower once you get to the top and you have narrower options to advance your career or maintain it. But just always remember, that's a key component. So what I would say is, well done, sir. You have done a great job in putting this all together. I don't have much to add. Just remember that version you wrote. It's like going into a job interview, as we discussed yesterday. The job pays 60. You want to see if you can get 65. So you ask for 70 and then negotiate down you're not going to get all of that there even though it's number of contingencies even those contingencies will fall apart but it's a decent i would say best case scenario roadmap to follow i like i like the way he's thinking Cobb. next
3: all right this comes from Matt. he's got a bit of a twofer he got a technique question and a life question for you
1: all right yeah i'm here to answer both Cobb. it's what i do
3: <laughs> all right so the technique question uh he says the UFC YouTube channel released the Conor versus Chad Mendez interim uh, featherweight title fight, and I noticed Conor has his hands low as usual, both because it was his style and to be in a position to bump and push away from Chad. Wait,
1: Conor Connor versus Chad?
3: Uh Mendez. Yeah. Yep. Mm, okay. Uh, he says this got him caught a few times by the overhand right, similar similarly to how Habib Nurmagomedov knocked him down. I don't know if you've seen this, but this Conor style make him more susceptible to an overhand, right? Mm,
1: Perhaps, but what you also have to consider is what's the, common denominator between Mendez and Nurmagomedov, right? They're both wrestlers. So, one thing that you often see from strikers is, number one, you can have your hands down by your waist if you are willing to shoulder roll. That's more so in boxing, obviously opponent-dependent, but it is an option for you. The other key consideration there is your hands are going to want to be down so you can get ready to down block or underhook for someone shooting on your legs. Right? That's why your hands might be down. And it's a weakness in the system, as you saw Nurmagomedov take advantage of, and 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 Mendez too, Uh, but that's probably why. They, They are gonna keep their hands down there as a way to, they can probably block some things, but not perfectly, but it gives them a much better advantage relative to takedown concerns, especially if you go back to the Mendez fight and McGregor had a bum knee, he was gonna need every bit of early underhooking to avoid the takedowns as possible. And you saw for a lot of that, it didn't even work. But even then, you know, you got, you got to give yourself as much of a, he- a head start on the takedown defense as you can. So I suspect it's that. Now, what's the other part of that question?
3: So he finished the email. P.S. I am an 18-year-old high school senior living in the DMV and want to get into sports media. Uh, I'm going to community college for a year, but what do you recommend as an educational path for someone looking into this field?
1: Jesus. Go be a doctor instead. Um, <laughs> okay you do not need to study journalism but if you want to get into like your college newspaper as a way to practice i recommend that that'd be a great way to learn sort of learn as an apprenticeship kind of thing on the job um study something academic study engineering study statistics um study study something totally divorced from sports media have an awareness of the wider world beyond just the sports world Your sports fandom and your intrigue will probably, for the most part, in many cases anyway, carry you through to a position where you'll develop relative expertise in that field. What you need to have is a wider understanding of how the rest of the world works, which you're not gonna get if you just completely focus on just media and then sports studies. So study something that will make you smarter about the world and then bring all of those insights to bear. Next. Answer my question!
3: All right, I hope I'm pronouncing this gentleman's name correctly. This comes from Bilal, who says, Hey, Luke, hope you're doing well. Bilal, Mohammed. <laughs> uh, I know you're not a fan of boxing and MMA crossovers, and deservedly so, but I thought I'd bring up something that's gaining some traction in UK boxing news.
1: Oh, uh, Let me Dillian, guess, Dillian White and uh, Francis? You got it. So right. uh,
3: I'll just skip to his question of, would you? are you interested at all in this matchup, and would you consider discussing it on your show? I don't think it comes with the same issues as a typical boxing MMA crossover debate due to Dillian's background as a kickboxer and Ngannou's fighting style.
1: So agreed. It's not exactly the same. And then the other difference here that he didn't mention was, and again, this could all be promotional bluster. The other consideration here is that um, Eddie Hearn, who is the promoter for Dillian White, has said that he's going to reach out to Dana White to talk this through. Okay. So, Let's be real about this. The chances that any of this amounts to anything is virtually nil. I don't take it seriously. I will grant it a little bit more seriousness uh, if, in fact, Hearn reaches out to have conversations with Dana, because you never know what direction they might go in these uncertain times. I don't suspect that a Dillian White versus Francis Ngannou fight is some kind of major blockbuster that gets the UFC to want to do things a little bit differently. It'd be intriguing to the KOBs and the and the me's of the world, and obviously to this person as well, to the hardcore fans, but I don't know that it really moves the needle for the major sporting public. Uh, they don't really know who Dillian White is. Obviously across the pond they do, but not here. And remember, your major pay-per-view buying audience is here. And uh, they don't really know who Francis is either. They're getting close, right? They're both kind of on that, they're on that cusp, but they're not really there yet. So, um, for the reasons that we already know, UFC fighters can't go do this, right? They're contractually forbidden without getting exceptions. Conor's been the only one to get an exception. Is the next guy to get an exception Francis Ngannou? That sounds like quite the leap. So I don't take it all that seriously, uh, but. If, if Eddie Hearn reaches out and Dana confirms that they spoke, I'll give it a little bit more credence. All right, do we have one more, Cobb? One more that we could lean into today?
3: Yeah, let's slide in one more. All right. Uh, this comes from I, – I, I know I saw this one last week. I don't think I read it. So this one comes from Edwin from Houston who says, Hey, Luke, I feel one of the cleanest punches opponents have landed on John Jones is the uppercut when they're up close, like Reyes, Cormier, and Gustafson. Yep. Big Francis has a couple of KOs by uppercut. Do you think that's the path to victory for Edwin? Uh, what other shots do you think might land clean on Jones?
1: Really, it depends. This is why the fight is so intriguing. So, like, if Big Francis puts hands on John Jones, do I think John Jones can survive? He might survive a couple of them, right? Let's let's say. But in general, I think we'd all agree if Big Francis puts enough of them meat hooks on you, it is over for you. Okay. So so let's just assume that he can KO any man on earth. John Jones being one of them. Is that a particular vulnerability that John has? Sort of this sort of lazily leaning over in the clinch? The answer is yes. He has shown it on a number of times. But there's a couple of factors you do to want to keep in mind. Number one, would he be that lazy about Francis' big punches in the clinch? He might have been lazier with other guys, not worried about their punching power. Uh, you know, if there's one thing, literally, you have to worry about with Francis, it's got to be that. So you would imagine that they might game plan around that, number one. Of course, you could also say that bad habits will make him do that. It's another debate you could have. I'm just sort of pointing out reasons to think it might just be that obvious. But certainly that would be one i think the second one would be to what extent does john want to play the distance game john has a greater reach than francis not significantly but he does and so i suspect he's going to want to use that i have told everyone i think john's offense has deteriorated i think his defense has gotten way better since his early days he is very very hard to hit he is an excellent defensive fighter so that will probably come into play here as well. And then the other thing you have to ask yourself is to what extent is John going to be able to get the takedown? On the one hand, you know, um, John has had a history of being really good at those, not so much recently. On the other hand, Francis has not had a good history of defending takedowns, but appears to have gotten better. And so how does that play out? Does John just go for the takedown on him like Silva was taken down by Sonnen? So, you know, these considerations about getting punched in the, clinch with an uppercut no longer are even relevant um so to your point if they find themselves there and if john is resorting to bad habits that is obviously an ever-present threat but there are some larger considerations you might want to have about why that won't necessarily materialize
0: Thanks for listening. Catch the Luke Thomas show live and in its entirety weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM fight nation channel 156 on Twitter. Follow at L Thomas news and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.